Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Today's guest is a Hall of Famer you saw and heard her frequently during The Last Dance. Even a partial reading of our guest's resume would take up half the show, and I promise she is ready to check in. But first, Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thanks, Darlene. Where do we begin with Andrea Kramer? Unique doesn't even begin to describe her. In 2018, she was honored by the Pro Football Hall of Fame with the Pete Rozelle Radio Television Award. She was the first full-time female NFL game analyst teaming up with Hannah Storm on Prime Video's Thursday Night Package. She is a multiple Emmy winner, a correspondent for Real Sports with Bryant Gumble on HBO, which is one of my favorites, and, and a chief correspondent for the NFL Network. She also appeared frequently on The Last Dance, having covered the beginning and early years of the Bulls dynasty for ESPN. Andrea, it's so good to see you, my friend, and welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Oh, Monica, it's wonderful to talk with you again. I wish we were actually seeing each other in person, but I guess this will have to do for now. We'll how are you? Got to ask you, how are you? Because that question does take on more importance now than ever. It's not just a social pleasantry. How are you? I am well. Um, Bruce is here. I'm super pumped to get into this conversation with you. I. It's funny because um, I wasn't really feeling continuing to do our podcast when the pandemic sort of began, but it has honestly been something that I very much look forward to. It reminds me what day of the week it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always good to know that, right? And that structure to the day, which I think is is hugely important for people just to have structure and, and try to, uh, uh, as I keep saying, the people who think it's going to go back to quote unquote normal are the people that are really going to struggle the most because this is the new normal and we're, we have to make the best of it. No, no question. Indeed, indeed. All right. So speaking of that, we're definitely going to get into the last dance, but you're right. This is a time in which we are asking folks how they're doing in earnest. Um, you mentioned that new normal. How are you and your family navigating this space? You know, you know listen, um, we uh, thank you for asking. We are all well. We have uh, considering that uh, there are so many people who have lost their jobs and, and who are struggling literally to put food on the table day to day. I have no complaints. I am incredibly grateful for everything that we do have. My The silver lining is my son is home from college and uh, I kind of feel for him that he's doing online learning and oh my God, he's on the quarter system. So he's not done yet, but um, he's, he's, we're all, we're all thriving and doing well. And uh, you know, the show goes on. I'm, I, you know, I'm doing our CBS show. We need to talk in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've got a story coming up on real sports next month, next week. We, you know, we're continuing to do all the things that we're normally doing. I've got a, uh, which I'm actually really looking forward to. I was supposed to host this uh, big 
virtual, this big gala fundraiser uh, for a, um, a very important uh, nonprofit in Boston, and we're honoring Devin McCourty. Hmm. And obviously, uh, this isn't happening, but we're doing it virtually. And I got to hire my producer. We're doing it like a, a full television show. We've got all kinds of guests that we're surprising him with. So don't tell anybody. But, uh, you know, it's life goes on. It's just that simple. And we have to make the best of it. And, um, and that's that's hugely important. Come um, on, I, mute that phone. Mute I know. that phone. It's that Apple deal where it rings on your computer, too. The phone I is know, so I know, I know. Believe me, I've got mine here just in case, waiting to, you know, waiting to pounce in case anything right. goes off. But, hey, you know, this is what happens. We're on a live podcast. Absolutely. Quick reaction. How, we got to be like athletes. Okay, you mentioned the new normal. I'm super excited. I'm sure that production will be fantastic. And no worries. Our lips are sealed. Um, <laughs> but from what I understand, our terrific producer, Bruce Bernstein, he says that your new piece coming out for Real Sports has to do with athletes athletes in their new normal. Can you share anything about that? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the things I love about real sports is that we update stories that, that uh, were, were particularly strong at some point and, and something has happened that merits finding out what, what has changed or, or what is new. So two years, about two years ago, we had profiled Kansas city chiefs, uh, offensive lineman, Laurent Duvernay Tardif, who is uh, Canadian and he is the first active player to earn a medical degree while he's playing. And the update was going to be, you know, here's this guy who was such a long shot and makes it and gets a big contract. And now he won the Super Bowl and and how he was received in Canada and things of that nature. However, what uh, and we, we were planning, believe it or not, to shoot that in March. Well, that didn't happen. But as it turns out, uh, he is back home in Canada and although he has not started his residency, so he cannot work as a doctor, he is uh, on the front lines at a long-term care facility working with uh, elderly patients. And it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's risky. It just is. I mean, here's the, a multi-million dollar athlete who certainly doesn't need to be doing this, uh, but he feels very strongly uh, about trying to help in whatever ways possible. He was telling me that he's, he's working technically as an orderly and as a nursing assistant and, you know, helps with medications and things of that nature. And he goes, but I have a really good friend who's one of the top radiologists around and he can't work right now because nothing elective is going on. And he's doing the same thing I'm doing. So it sort of doesn't matter what it is as long as you're contributing in some way. And what was really interesting to me, Monica, is that one of the things he does, and you know, you read about these things, but when you talk to people who are who are living it, it's a very different, very different thing. He is interfacing with the families that cannot see the patients. Mm -hmm. And oh man, him telling the story about how he's he's the lifeline, the communicative lifeline is is really intense. And and he wasn't expecting how emotional this was going to be. And he put it in perspective. He's like, I'm not working on a day-to-day -day basis with all these COVID patients, but I can only imagine the mm -hmm. doctors and the nurses who are, I know how I feel. I can only imagine how they do. And it was really, it was really, um, it was really quite enlightening and illuminating to, to hear this athlete talk about this. Man, 
You know, Andrea, uh, my mom is in a long care, a long term care facility uh, mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of Boston. And uh, what you're saying is exactly what's going on in, in their place. I mean, she went in there at the very tail end of February, just before this began. So I haven't even been able to go visit with her. But each Wednesday, each Wednesday afternoon at four o'clock, we do a FaceTime with her. And the man who comes to her room to do a FaceTime, he's not, you know, his, his normal job is to be a music therapy uh, you know, coordinator, whatever. So he comes in there and he brings the iPad in and I talk to my mom on FaceTime for about 15 minutes and it truly is a lifeline. And, you know, my mom is 93 years old. And so I always tell her, you know, she, and she doesn't always understand this whole craziness that's going on. So, you know, the, the best I can do is just say, mom, I love you. And as soon as they let me come visit, I'll come visit. But that gentleman whose name is Ian has been absolutely a godsend for both of us. Right. And that's exactly one of the things that Laurent is doing uh, is is doing in Canada. So, yeah, it's it's uh, thank you for sharing that, Bruce. Yeah, it's very, very intense. And boy, we we hope your mom stays healthy and safe. That's for sure. But, you know, Monica, it's just not the typical thing that you're thinking about that athletes are going to do. I mean, we've seen athletes posting all kinds of videos and their workout videos. And oh, by the way, on top of his his work at the long term care facility facility, Laurent is still doing his workouts as best as he can. And he he zooms in with the Chiefs as they're doing installation for the upcoming season. So he's doing all the football stuff. But, uh, you know, he's just he's just someone who has always had a different worldview. And now he gets to apply that uh, once again as uh, uh, during this pandemic. I love that. I mean, and we always hear along the way that the diversity, not just of race, but the diversity in thought processes and the academic ac acumen of these guys in locker rooms vary so much. So I just love hearing stories like that. I can't wait to watch this real sports. But let me ask you this, Andrea, because you obviously are someone um, has, who spent a career in sports, most prominently recently here in the NFL space. Um, but, you know, the NBA is trying to figure out what's next. From where you sit, it is obviously going to be a daunting task to sort of navigate this new normal on a league competition level. Um, at the top of your list, in terms of things that must exist in order for any league, but particularly the NFL to resume safely, what what is it? Well, this is, this is an opportunity for me to actually quote my husband who uh, is an archeologist, he is a scientist, but he, he's had the best line all along and I, and I completely give him credit for this. He said, the person who tells you that they know it's going to happen, you stay more than six feet away from them. And I, I think to me, that's the reality is that we really don't know, Monica. Uh, look, in terms of the NFL space, uh, they have from March on tried to do everything as normal as possible. They've kept to their deadlines of free agency. They got the collective bargaining agreement done. They did the draft. They did the schedule release. I have to admit that at some point, um, you know, th there's a part of all of us that has to be sitting there going, are you in denial? But this is this is what they are doing. That They are approaching it as though it's business as usual. The season is going to start in September. Uh, look, they they certainly did some, there were some, as you well know, I'm sure there was sort of some little hidden things built into the schedule such that if the season was going to be reduced, it would be, it, it wouldn't, uh, you know, backfire or anything like that. There's contingencies built in if the, if the Super Bowl has to be moved back. So there's things like that with the schedule. I think talking to some team doctors, to the players association, to players, to some coaches, 
Look, the, the question that I keep asking is, what happens when somebody tests positive? And for me, Monica, look, I am not a doctor, nor did I stay in a Holiday Inn last night. But I, for me, it's not if, it's when. It, it, yeah. you, you can't tell me that an NFL season is going to go by and no one, no one, whether you know team personnel, support personnel, somebody that's working at the stadium, whether or not there's fans or not, you can't tell me somebody's not going to test positive. Then what happens? Do we have a Rudy Gobert situation where the league just shuts down? So that's that's the key. In fact, early on, I was talking to a team doctor and he said, listen, I'm actually not as concerned about the season starting with or without fans, most likely without. He goes, I'm more thinking, is the season going to be able to be finished? Are they mm -hmm. going to be able to finish the season? Because what happens when somebody does test positive? But it's got to be about testing. It's got to be about being smart. But Monica, look, you're you're an athlete. You've, mm -hmm. You're a former athlete. You, know, you understand the, what the mentality is. The idea of I'm strong, I'm young, I'm invincible, I can play through injury. No, guys, this isn't a playing through injury type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that that's something that's going to be really hard for people to understand. Plus, you get into this to the moment of competition and we've all been there. You're going to do whatever it takes. Sure. You want yep. to win. You're not thinking, uh oh, uh, you know. He's, he just, I just watched him sneeze and he touched the ball. He's the center. And now he passed, you're not thinking about things like that. So it's at, at some point we all have to get out there, right. And try to have some resumption of, of our lives, but it's, it's a scary thing because you don't know how it can affect you. Agreed. Right? Agreed. And I think um, I'm having this conversation a bunch with our guys at MSG. And I, at, initially it seemed like I was the only one that was like, listen, this is, yes, we still have athletes who see themselves as invincible, but we are in a different age of athlete in terms of this idea of wellness, right? And mental health. And just as taxing as this experience is for you, Andrea and, and Bruce, if you can't see his mom and, and whatever, you know, like there are things that they're dealing with. And so I remember asking the guys, if you're a teammate of Carl Anthony Towns, can you blame him? Yesterday, we had Larry Nance point out that he has Crohn's disease. He has a pre-existing condition. If he doesn't want to come back to the league, what does that look like? Blake Snell, the pitcher for the Blue Jays. Now, I get that some people were aggravated at the idea of a millionaire bristling about more or less millions. But in that same breath, for me, the basic statement of you're asking me to return for less and take more risk, on a basic level, I have, an, I have a great job that I love. I don't know that I would go back for more risk and less money either. And so this conversation has so, so many layers. And I think it's important that we hear one another from a place of respect, whether we agree or not, and acknowledge that ultimately there are going to be some sacrifices to be made. Yeah, be beautifully said. And and I, I couldn't agree more. And it's also one of these things, and I'm sure that, that you even find this in, in your daily life, which is the minute you think you've solved one issue, six other things happen. <laughs> that you weren't even expecting, which is which is really which is really amazing. I think that uh, you, there's just so much that is unknown. And and uh, talking to Doc Emmerich, and he called it. Look, he said, you know, this is the unseen enemy. <laughs> you know, mm. you, you, it's it's you you really don't know what what you're dealing with here. And and the other thing, and and some players certainly in in some of the early on, some of the baseball players talked about this because the the question of being sequestered away is you're bringing it back to your family. I mean, what if you have, you know, um, uh, a player like Devin McCourty of, of the New England Patriots, he has two young kids, but his wife's pregnant. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. okay, he's going out, he's taking on the precautions, but he's still going home 
to a family unit, which is has a pregnant woman who that is considered a pre-existing condition. This is a higher risk person. So, you know, we, we forget that, uh, well, you and I don't forget, but many, many people out there forget that these guys are human. They have the same kind of family units and, and things of that nature that we do. And they have to deal with uh, with a lot of these things as well. You know, Andrea, all of the major sports are sort of in different situations here. I mean, basketball and hockey, indoor sports, baseball and football, outdoor sports. Do you happen to know, or I'm just curious, for the commissioners, this is so unprecedented, as it is for everybody. Do you know if Adam Silver and Roger Goodell, Rob Manfred and Gary Bettman have communicated with one another to discuss their common concerns? I mean, that would be a pretty cool Zoom conference. Yeah, I I cannot answer that question directly because I've not asked any of them. But we know, Bruce, that for whatever this is worth, (laughs) they're communicating through the White House task force Mm. because they've all been on that same committee with a number of other, um, you know, with a number of other sports executives and and, uh, the medical directors for the players associations and the leagues are, are all on that. Uh, so I think like, for example, in the NFL, a lot of their medical information, Dr. Alan Sills, who, uh, it, it really just seems to be taking an extremely strong and proactive, uh, role along with Dr. Tom Mayer from the NFL Players Association. They're in touch with the folks at Duke at the infectious disease, uh, 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 unit down at, at Duke University, and they get a lot of their information from there. So listen, nobody wants to put anybody in, in danger. So I think that they're doing all that they can to move heaven and earth to find out all the answers, but the answers just may not exist. It's just like the vaccine may not exist and and the adequate testing may not exist. And and then, you know, I think the other thing that, we, that we'd be remiss if we didn't mention is that, I mean, you, you, ta- you, ju- you just brought up hockey, okay? Hockey, for example, if they don't get back, you're looking at the potential of, excuse me, maybe five teams that just vaporize. They can't afford it. You're, 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 you're looking at teams that just may not have the economic wherewithal, because especially in hockey, I was just talking to somebody, uh, believe it or not, that's, that's very uh, involved with the NHL just yesterday. And he was saying, you know, hockey, think I, I'd forgotten about this, really, unlike the other sports, that derive most of the revenue from broadcast contracts, hockey gets the majority of its revenue from ticket sales. Wow. Well, what if there's no ticket sales? What if there's no fans? What happens there? So, you know, of course, health and safety has to be paramount for everybody, but there are also economic considerations that that have to go into this. Woo, man. Heavy is the head that wears the crown on these decisions. Yikes. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. And and can I just say really quickly, not to open another Pandora's box, but I know this for a fact because I've had people at the league office tell me this, um, liability issues. Mm. I, that's one that I've particularly been curious about on the collegiate level. I just read a great oh. article in the Athletic. In USA Today, did you read it today? About should they finally... Un- Which one no, I, I mean, now we're, we're getting all over the place and, and, and all, but just, just you know, food for thought for, for another time. Terrific article today about... And boy, I mean, I, I admit I, I'm I'm always kind of pro player here. You know, get it while you can. You know, your your career could literally end in one play. But the story today was about 
has there been a better time for collegiate athletes, particularly in football, to try to unionize? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I your 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 scholarship and 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 getting this free education. Please note, Andrea Kramer's using air quotes here. You know, <laughs> but uh, you know. This is the time you're going to make us go back at potentially and you're going to make us practice and you're going to make us work as, as sort of unpaid employees. And we have we have no you know, we're, we're, how's our risk being being, uh, you know, being handled here. So I don't know. I don't see it happening this quickly. But boy, if there ever was a time to have leverage, this is it for college That's athletes. That's word. Definitely leverage. Well, there is no cute way to segue. However, part of the reason that we reached out to one fantastic Andrea Kramer is because she is so prominently featured in The Last Dance. And so we're going to put a pin on COVID and sports. And we're all, like you said, like your husband said, we don't have the answers. So we're just going to wait and see. Um, but what we do know is that the 10-part documentary, The Last Dance, on one Michael Jordan and his 1998 Bulls squad was a hit. I'm curious, though, Andrew, because you are a journalist right? And you have a number of accolades. I am still somewhat struck, particularly as more think pieces and commentary from guys that were in the documentary kind of trickle out. I'm still struck that Mike had a lot of control, creative control on this piece. But as you watched, and obviously you were front and center covering it and working for ESPN, I mean, the truth varies on who's telling it, but how close to the truth did you kind of see, perceive the documentary to be? I, I got to tell you one one little story here before, uh, so I don't forget it. And this is not like an obnoxious name dropping thing, so please don't take it that way. I was oh. talking to I, I was talking to Phil Jackson last week just about you know kind of catching up and getting his um, his thoughts on it, and you know the the thing that he first thing that came to mind for him, which with which I completely concur, is it's an homage to Michael, no question. Mm-hmm. But he said there's been a couple of things that he just, he disagreed with what certain people remembered. And I said to him, I said to Phil, I said, you know what? It's like with our kids, it almost doesn't matter what happened. It only matters what they remember. And uh, there's just there. So there's a couple of little things and, and Phil wasn't, you know, wasn't upset about it or anything like that. He's just, he, he would, he told me that he was texting with Michael about it. And he said, you said this and I didn't remember this isn't this isn't what happened. So there's look, it's always going to be a recollection. And Monica, it always is. It, this is obviously the opportunity for people to rewrite their their own narrative, rewrite their their own history. I, I will say this. Um, and just just so so people understand and you, you alluded to this uh in, in your lovely introduction of me, but I'm so associated with the NFL now. But people forget that when I joined ESPN in 1989 and opened their Chicago Bureau, I was covering the NBA nonstop. So I did the Pistons first two championships and then Jordan's championships. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I, I am extremely proud of is to have been there with Jordan and the Bulls through the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, mm-hmm. which means that, yeah, you're there through the playoff losses and of course the wins and the championships, but your, I was also in that media scrum when he came back from Atlantic city after gambling. And, and I went down to North Carolina and covered his testifying in the slim Buller trial and schlepped to Birmingham and covered him with the Barons. And probably, you, you know, Bruce may or may not remember this, but uh, probably the biggest story that I ever broke at ESPN was Jordan coming back. And then I did the first interview with him when he did come back. And uh, one of those reasons is because I was around 
all the time. And, and I was there through the good and the, and the not so good. So I really, uh, that's why the last dance people came to me. I mean, you have no idea how much you're going to be in it. I mean, they had said to myself and our mutual good friend, one of my dearest friends, David Aldridge, who I had the pleasure of, you know, quote unquote, presenting when he was inducted into the, to the Naismith hall of fame. But, you know, Jason Hare, uh, the director basically wanted David and me to provide the journalistic narrative. Wow. And I think that that's what we were able to do throughout the, throughout the, um, throughout the documentary. One, I, I got early on after one of the early episodes, I got a really interesting email from a sports editor who said, I've been enjoying your commentary and I, I, I do not in any way want this to come off self-serving, <laughs> please, please, please. But he said, you're the only, you seem to be the only voice only journalistic voice that's not associated with Michael's PR team. Mm -hmm. And the same that could be said of David, the same, right. the same exact thing. So I, I think that overall, um, there's no question that uh, when you give control, editorial control to someone, they're going to exercise it. And we can certainly see places throughout the 10 part documentary where that, uh, that to me was evident. Does it, my dad and I have, and Bruce and I have discussed this. For me, it was like, wow, I was, I was eight, nine. Right. I, I was going to say, you're the person that this documentary right. is for because, 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 and I've said this, it's kind of like with John Madden people, of course they know the Madden game and they know he, you know, was this announcer, boom, boom, boom. Oh yeah. He was a coach, right? A hall of fame coach. They forget that with Jordan. Of course it's the sneakers and it's the brand and yeah he owns a team now and of course he was a great player but hearing michael jordan was a great player and seeing this video right i mean i was at so many of those games that we see throughout the the the, the documentary and i'm still sitting here going oh my god did he just do that so i would actually i'd actually be very curious to you especially as a former player when you watch him and you see that athleticism and you see really what he's able to do on both ends of the court. What do you take away that you didn't realize as an eight year old when you first maybe started watching him? Uh, one, I just think, and you probably didn't really see this through the documentary, but as a former player, you know that his basketball IQ was off the charts, right? And he was also gifted with this beautifully talented, strong, and powerful body. But the biggest takeaways for me, honestly, Andrea, one, I was so impressed by Phil Jackson. And I let, I read his book, 11 Rings, but I've always kind of had this interest in leadership, right? So I was thoroughly impressed and captivated by Phil. I think when Mike got choked up, I want to say it was at the end of series seven, maybe, or eight, mm -hmm. somewhere there, when he got choked up as he spoke about the weight of winning and wanting to win so badly and his love of the game, um, that touched me because I think that, that that's not a given for anybody. Just because someone reaches the NBA doesn't mean that they carry the game that way and that passionately. But again, for me, the leadership thing, I don't know that in real time, I would have identified Mike as a good leader so much as I would have been comfortable saying he was an example that you could follow. Because to me, the way that he interacted with some of his, te his teammates, I don't know that that flies amongst my peers that are more my contemporaries that are now pro athletes. And so I get that it was a different time and he was this larger than life sports icon. 
but just sort of the leadership things, themes were things that struck me. A couple things uh, that I, that come to mind as I, as I listen to you say that number one, he said something that I know has been very important in my career with the people who have mentored me. And that is Michael said, I never asked anybody to do anything I wasn't going to do myself. Asterisk. And you know, that's, that, that to me is, is, is a big deal. Um, and then I, I've maintained this, look, I've, I've been covering sports for 30 plus years. And, and I say this in the most complimentary way. It's the most ruthless competitor I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And listen, uh, as you say, maybe it wouldn't fly with the athlete of today, but for me, it's sort of like, now you don't have to be a jerk necessarily, but here's the deal, the way I see it. If you can't handle what he's putting out there on the practice court, if you can't handle that pressure, how are you going to handle pressure in a game? How are you going to pr- handle pressure in a game seven? How are you going to handle the pressure of needing to get that final rebound? How are you going to handle the pressure of having to make that final shot if you can't handle what Michael Jordan is dishing out on the practice court? See, and and DA says, I'm sorry to cut you off. DA said something similar. Last week we had our friend Sherrod Blakely on who covers um, the Celtics up in Boston. I just don't know that that equates. I just, I, I hear you and I 100% agree that the intensity of practice should be far more than that of a game so that you're prepared. But you gotta be a jerk about it. Like trash talking is one thing, right? But like belittling, berating, like crossing lines. I don't know, Andrew. I hear you and obviously well, it works. Right, and you, and and as you know, there's different leadership styles and there's different, and people are gonna respond to different things. Um. What I would say is this, and, I, and I've seen this with some bosses that I've had, leaders that I've seen, whatever it is, that is, uh, you can yell at somebody, you can berate them, you can belittle them, and some people are going to respond affirmatively, and they're going to step up, and they're going to take a, like an F you attitude, I'm going to show you, and Monica, other people are going to be paralyzed, yep. and they are going to be unable to respond because they're they're shell-shocked really and of course for the person who did it the person who said it it's gone it's in the ether it's out there they they have you know it's been their verbal enema it's out they're done with it but it's it's really hard to know how people are going to respond and again to me and and i'm not saying it's right or wrong and and no question look bottom line six championships something must have worked with a different with with yes there was there was scotty and 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 you know he was really the lone constant right because john paxson begat steve kerr and and bill cartwright and and you know begat luke longley and and will you know it, it changed except for michael and scotty but um um and and then not to not to change it but the the if there had to be sort of a, a bit of a disappointment for me. Like I appreciate that Jordan, uh, you know, people are going to tell you what they want to tell you and what they want you to hear about them. Uh, and he, he pretty much stuck to everything. I mean, he didn't back down on any of the Isaiah stuff or Brian mm-hmm. Russell or anything like that. But when Scotty was given the opportunity to talk about 1.8, and let me tell you something, I was at that game my ESPN cameraman was at the end of the bench when that was going on. So we knew everything that happened before anybody else did. We're, I remember walking down those 
scary stairs at the to go to the bowels of the United Stadium, United Center to, uh, excuse me, old Chicago Stadium to get into the locker room at that time. And um, and my cameraman tells us what happened. And it was just crazy because we he was literally right there. Anyway, I digress. But when Scotty was given the opportunity, he said, if I had the chance to do it all again, I'd do the same thing. Scotty, dude, really? I mean, here's your opportunity to say, listen, I've had a, I'm a hall of famer. I, I am the greatest second to the greatest ever. And I learned from that, whatever it is, Monica, I don't know how that resonated for you, but it really, I got to tell you, it disappointed me. I appreciated the candor. And I, I think, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrea, obviously you were there, but I want to say that after Bill Cartwright, I believe, gets emotional in that response, it, can we call it a sort of seminal moment for that group? Well, Scotty certainly learned from it, but, but again, remember, there's no Michael Jordan here. Right. And, and I don't think, and I don't live in a world of hypotheticals, but I mean, that ain't happening if Jordan's on the team. I mean, it goes without saying that the last play wouldn't have been wouldn't have been diagrammed for Tony Kukoc to begin with, but but still, that doesn't happen. And I think that um, I think if if Scotty learned something in the moment, how can you years later, upon reflection, say I wouldn't have done anything differently? I mean, I I just I I just I, I just I just don't get it. I I, I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I I can see that. I'm not a psych psychologist or anything like that but i believe that that the whole you know had it been anyone i mean because it was tony kukoc all right i think scotty's was wired to just be totally against kukoc because of the connection to jerry Krause. and i think all these years later even though at the very tail end of the show scotty finally gave Krause, jerry Krause a little bit of love by saying well you know but at in 1994 when that took place he was still right in the heart of that. So I think his eternal enmity for Jerry Krause, in spite of that nice little word, kind of, you know, got displaced on Tony Kukoc. And that's why I think he still feels like, screw those guys. Yeah, but but again, but to that, to that exact point, Bruce, I mean, enough time has passed. Mm-hmm. You're in the Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? This is, this is this this did not keep your career from advancing and i just i just i guess i just would have liked to have heard again i don't need him to have said i'm sorry or i mean no don't be sorry you did what you did you learned from it and things of that nature full stop monica to your point about phil jackson i think that one of the things that resonated for me was how hurt he was i think mm. it really i think it really hurt him what happened with uh, with Scotty? Can I can I share a, a kind of a, a little personal story for you? We love all the stories. Let's go. Which which is kind of kind of an interesting thing. So so this one point eight game, Tony Kukoc, Scotty mm-hmm. Pippen refusing to go in with one point eight seconds to go against the Knicks was a, a Friday night game. Next game was big national game on Sunday. We're at the game. The next day, that Saturday, I had a long standing scheduled interview with Phil Jackson. Usually I sat down with Phil and Michael for what that time was the ESPN Sunday conversation, which was a big franchise at that point. Like if you made the Sunday conversation, it was a really big deal. And I had scheduled it with Phil. So we get done. This is the biggest story in the entire country. You know, your best player refusing to go in the game. And and my producers are, what are we going to do? And I go, we're going to show up Saturday morning. We're going to just proceed as though it's business as usual till we get thrown out. 
So we get there early. We know the entrance to go into. We take the elevator up to, to where we're setting up. And I'm standing on the landing outside this elevator. And Jerry Krause is walking up the stairs and Phil is going down. And Krause sees me and says, what's she doing here? And Phil says, I had this interview scheduled with her and I'm, I'm honoring that. At that moment, inside, I'm going, yay, yay, <laughs> yay. Because he was honoring the interview and we were the only people to talk to him before the game, which was yeah. amazing and got a chance to, to really get Phil unvarnished about, about what that moment was all about. So, of course, it was a way for Phil to tweet Krauss, but it also spoke to, you know, relationships that had been built up. And certainly I, I always appreciated that Phil honored that when he had every right to say, I'm sorry, I, I, we're going to have to postpone this, do it another time, because this is such a big story that's developing in sports right now. Andrea, I know you have all the accolades and that you're fantastic, but you was really putting in work on this bull squad back in the day. Like you were, you were front and center crushing it. And I know for me, one of the takeaways as I was walk, watching the doc is I loved seeing you and Willow Bay. Of course, personally, I was like, were there any women of color doing their thing back then? But whatever, you clearly were holding it down. But I am curious as just a little aside, what was that like? Because women were not as prominent in sports media as they are today, obviously. And you were like, on the beat of the biggest team in sports, like right there up front with these great quality relationships. The, the interesting thing is reflecting back on it. And this is when, when I talked to Phil this week, this is something we were talking about because it, it is, it's like every day is throwback Thursday, you know, when you, when you're watching this documentary and even when I was doing the interview with them. But I, I think that I really, I, I realized that I really cut my teeth as a reporter then. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I think that I really learned how to be a reporter in covering the Bulls teams for all those years. I remember um, early on, I mean, here it is my first year covering the NBA like this and the Pistons were, were on, on top of the, of the NBA mountain at that time. And I'm in the Pistons locker room one day and uh, you know, think it was on that team. I mean, Robman and Lambeer and, and Isaiah and, and Joe Dumars and, and all that. So one day I'm in the locker room and granted, look, having the ESPN mic is a great moniker. It doesn't make people go, who is she? Why is she? You know, it just, it helps. Even if they don't know who I am, they see the mic. Mm -hmm. Dennis Rodman pulls me over and he says, um, everything going okay? And I go, yeah. And he goes, if anybody gives you trouble in here, you come to me, I'll take care of it. And I was sort of like, okay, okay, <laughs> thanks. But it was it was really it was really interesting. I would not have expected to hear that from someone like Rodman. I mean, obviously Rodman with the Pistons, very different than what Rodman quote unquote became. But I'll never forget that. And so I I I don't know, Monica. Looking back on it, I don't remember a time when I, I was disrespected or or anything along those lines. And 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 I'm starting out in my career, and I maybe ignorance was bliss. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. But um, the ability to to learn in that environment, and again, get back to what I said before, is you got to ask the questions respectfully to whoever it is, Michael, Scotty, whoever, you know, the greatest of all time, you got to be able to ask those questions and be honest and forthright. And, and that's how you're building your reputation. For sure. You know, Andrea, you were talking about Phil Jackson a moment ago. And, you know, um, 
I always was wondering what your opinion on this might be. So he coaches Michael Jordan to six championships. And then he takes his little year off after 98. And then he goes with Kobe and Shaq. And he wins five more championships there. Now, there are probably it's probably hard to find two more similar basketball players than Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Do you feel that what, – what do you think Phil learned from coaching MJ that allowed him to do such a great job with Kobe? Well, I think the biggest thing that Phil walked into with um, with the Lakers is uh, I think six rings gives you some credibility. <laughs> I mean, I think that's 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 the biggest thing. I think that Phil cut his teeth, um, learned so much coaching the Bulls, and was able to, you know, look. Phil is um, as Monica sort of alluded to. Phil is not a conventional coach, and you know, people look at at the background of you know his his embracing uh, American Indian culture and philosophy and, and, and things of that nature. And, um, and they, they may think it's a show. Uh, trust me, it's not. Uh, I had, it took me 20 years, 20 years, but Phil agreed to, to let us profile him for HBO real sports and let me come out to Montana. he never had any other media people out in Montana. And um, there's actually a scene in there where he says to me, we're standing on in front of the lake. He, he lives on a lake and he, he actually makes a comment about a kind of, I can't believe you're here. I've let you in too close as it is, you know, because it's such, it's literally sacred ground for him. But trust me in his houses, there's all the, uh, he's, he's got a teepee on his property in Montana. This is real. So when he can have these philosophies and they work, and they win six championships in Chicago. When he goes to LA and he does some things that might be considered avant-garde, then I think he's got that credibility and it makes him work. But one of the other things in our profile of our real sports profile of Phil, he referenced um, how when Michael came to see Kobe for the first time play, and Kobe went off and Phil said, Kobe knows Michael's in the stadium and he's putting on a show. Kobe so wanted to be like Mike. I mean, everybody knows he watched the videos and, but he didn't just watch videos of him playing. He watched video of him in press conferences. If you remember early in Kobe's career, his verbal intonation sounded like Michael. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing how much he wanted to emulate and be Michael Jordan. And oh, by the way, can I just say definitively, I am of the mind there will never be another Michael Jordan. Please don't talk to me about next. Uh, the only comparables belong in real estate. They do not belong in sports. So I, I feel very, very strongly about that. I didn't know that Kobe emulated Mike to that extent. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, Yes. Kobe, I mean, he wanted, he want he, he would study his moves and he would literally study tape of him as when he's giving interviews, they sounded, he sounded like Michael in the beginning, Bruce is nodding. He remembers this. It was uncanny. Wow. It was uncanny how much he wanted to, to, to be the incarnation of Michael Jordan. I remember um, saying that at the time when I said, he sounds exactly like MJ. I mean, you're absolutely 100% correct imitation is the highest form of flattery for no sure. doubt 
hundred percent. Absolutely. That is such a great little crossroads for our, our conversation. And I know we got, we got to be mindful of your time though, Andrea, but here's what I, I do want from you. Give me on the last dance. Now we've seen all 10 parts. You obviously were a part of it. You did this thing in person. You were cutting your teeth back in the day on this dynasty. What should be the takeaway from my generation who kind of needed that to really grasp the greatness of Michael? Like what, what should be the takeaway as you see it? Well, I, I, it's a, it's a great question, but I, I think it's such a personal thing. I mean, you're a young African-American woman mm-hmm. who grew up as a very young girl watching this, but you played the game and your takeaway may be totally different than some middle-aged white guy. Right. And, okay. and I think that there, that there's a generational thing. There's certainly going to be a racial component that's, that's involved to me. I think that what I hope that people take away is a little better understanding and insight into what made Michael Jordan tick as a person and as a competitor. And for all of the verbiage and the the adjectives that we might use about his otherworldly skills, I think what we saw on full display is he's human. Yeah. He's gonna be, excuse my French, he can be an asshole. He can be, am I allowed to say that? Do we have to do we have to bleep me out? Oh, you're good. Let's okay, go. Okay, you can bleep me out. Now he's we're not an, gonna bleep you out. All right, but but I mean he can be he can be the he can be a real jerk but he can also be the guy who is i mean isn't really the most enduring image him sobbing on the ground holding that basketball sobbing thinking about you know his dad who had died i mean that's that's a that to me is the quintessential one picture says a thousand words that's not what you would have expected from michael from teflon michael and um, I think that so I think that there's there's a number of different takeaways, but just that but his he he is human mm-hmm. and he's got all of the different characteristics that can define someone, the good, the bad and the ugly. That's that's, I think, the biggest takeaway. It It, it is interesting. And we could, oh, my God, go on and talk about this so much longer and and you don't have time, but I, I know that for a lot yes, of people, do. the end, the end resonated in not a positive way. Because I think a lot of people said, okay, if you're building up to the last dance and you're building up to this final championship, I want to know why it didn't go on. Mm. Why didn't it happen? Because mm. at the end, suddenly, it sort of seemed like Reinsdorf put it on Kraus. Kraus put it on Phil. Phil put it on Kraus. Michael put it, we don't know where it went, but, you know, somebody, ultimately, I guess you got to think it's the owner. But somebody at some point said, no mas, no more. We're done. We're done. You're gone. You're gone. I mean, and, and to me, I guess I still really, I, I wanted more of a concrete answer of why Jerry Krause said to Phil Jackson before the season began, you can go 82 and 0 and you're not coming back. And listen, we know it's very easy to, who there's one clear villain in the whole thing and it's Jerry Krause. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they used archival footage and archival interviews from him, but obviously he's passed away. He doesn't have the ability to speak for himself, to defend himself, whatever it is. So I, I think that that's, um, 
that that was I don't know. Did you find that to be a void yourself? Uh, I I did not. But part of this to me was still it was it just kind of lives in lore. Like it's one of those things in sports that you could not write if you wanted to. Three three years off to play baseball and three more. Um, just based on Phil in terms of leadership, I kind of agree. And I think Mike said it somewhere along the way. Like when Phil said this was the last dance, this was the last dance. So we didn't even really fight down the stretch because it had already been stated at the beginning of the season. And we had the opportunity to hear Mike talk about just how taxing and how tired he was by the time that run was completed. I just, I just thought it was such an incredible story. I honestly wasn't puzzled. Oh, that's okay. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, people forget that winnings and, and we we've, we've seen this with other teams. We certainly saw it even in the NBA, we saw it with the Spurs and, and we saw it with the Lakers as well, which is you forget how long the playoffs are. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're talking about six years of, of a championship, how many extra almost seasons is that of play? Yeah. So it's exhausting. And, and listen, um, as I've said to some folks, you've got, this is why you have to, with the exception of a very few French couple of franchises in the NFL, this is why I've always believed in the separation of church and state, the separation of head coach and general manager, because the head coach needs to win now. And the general manager has to build for the future. Right. So Jerry Krause is looking at the future and, and seeing, uh, you know, would they even be able to afford everybody? Scotty likely wasn't coming back. It was already enough that, that he came back for this final run and came back to play after his injury, that final season as it was, but they weren't going to be able to afford everybody, but also, you know, was it Belichickian get rid of someone kind of at the top before they start you know, this precipitous fall down the other side of the mountain. So, you know, look, that's that Krauss had to do that. But I but there's no question, Monica, that there were personalities that were involved in that as well. Sure. You know, the the, the 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 relationship between Jerry Krauss and Phil Jackson had deteriorated to a point of no return. So and I don't the the vibe that I got from the doc was that Phil was out regardless. And to me, I just think it becomes a domino effect after that. Well, Michael had always said he wasn't going to play if Phil wasn't right. going to be his head coach. Um, but but again, the, it's a chicken and egg thing. Phil said he wasn't coming back, but that's because Krause told him, even if you go 82 and 0, you're not coming back. So, you know, at at what who 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 hit that first domino, right? Uh, what, well, you know of Phil though, Andrea, it, it wouldn't have been him to push back though, right? I mean, like the Zen like that's just not. You know what I mean? And for him, in the mystical world that Phil lives in, it had run its course. And, and that is a beautiful thing, kind of, to be celebrated and respected. It it, 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 I, it did feel that it it ran its course. And and listen, um, you know, everybody wants a fairytale ending, Monica, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 what we live in, the, the land of make-believe here. I actually, I like the, go- I love the going out on top. Yeah. I, I like the John Elway going out on top and Peyton Manning going out on top and, and the Bulls dynasty going out on top. I, it would have, um, I mean, I, I, I don't like to live in the land of hypotheticals, but I, I don't think I, I would have felt, I wouldn't have liked if they try to come back again, but they're tired and, and pieces are missing and, and oh. they just don't have it. And, and now he, they went out on top. 
that's 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 why I think the 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 what if at the end of the doc kind of puzzled me a little bit. There is so much to take away from the documentary, and I just love. I know that you didn't weren't prepared to be as prominently featured, perhaps, but I loved. That I movie. thought I, I had no idea I wasn't going to end up on the cutting room floor. You have no idea. <laughs> it was how long did you? How long? Like Da told us that I think he did two separate interviews for about two hours. How long yeah. did you have to sit? Two and, and a half, two and a half hours. Two and a half mm. hours. All right, we're winding down. We typically go with the buckets, boards, and blocks at the end of the show, but you've had such an expansive experience with both MJ, Phil, the, the Bulls. Anything, any other nuggets you want to share with us, Andrea? Because I just love your perspective. Well, I had an experience with, with Michael that um, I, I wasn't expecting. And I always I always say, you know, I, I teach young journalists, and I always say, we're not friends with these people. You can be friendly, but there's a big difference. And I've never considered myself friends with, mm -hmm. with him. That being said, um, I'm covering the Dream Team, 1992. And we were at training camp in San Diego. And um, my mother died. <laughs> and I, um, I, needless to say, I dropped everything. And I got on a plane to fly from San Diego home to Philadelphia. And the next day, I had an interview scheduled with Michael Jordan. So I go to Brian McIntyre, who is the head of NBA PR, and I said, hey, do me a favor. Maybe not that Michael cares, but I kind of don't like to blow him off. Would you just please make sure that he understands why I'm not here? Whatever it is, but just please make sure he understands that I'm not just canceling this interview, okay? I go home to Philadelphia. I bury my mom, um, took a couple weeks off. And I come back um, with the SPN, obviously, at the time. And the first thing that I come back to is the Tournament of the Americas in Portland. I'm covering this. And this was sort of the, the big tournament before the Olympics in 92. So first day I'm there and I'm just kind of getting my legs and getting my bearings. And I'm in the bowels of the stadium and I'm walking through the, the concourse. And coming the other way is this massive humanity, this huge, huge group of people. And I assume... It's Michael Jordan surrounded by the world's media. So I kind of, if you can picture, I kind of walk on the outside going the other way. And all of a sudden I hear Andrea and I turn around and Michael, God only knows how he could see through all this people. Plus, you know, I'm not exactly towering above everybody with my height, but he walks out of the group and he just says to me, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm really sorry about your mother. Mm. And I just stood there. I didn't know what to say. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I never forgot that because I didn't know that he knew. I can't believe that he thought of it at that moment. And then interestingly, when his dad died, it gave us sort of this macabre connection mm -hmm. because we both lost this parent that was so dear to us. And my, my takeaway from that, Monica, is I always say you and you probably have experiences as well. You always go by how the athletes treat you. Yeah. OK, somebody can be this, this, but you go by how they treat. And I never, ever forgot that that note of act of kindness that that Michael showed to me uh, just by expressing his condolences at my mom's passing. So that that's something that, um, you know, I, I, I rarely share, but it, it was a personal moment that meant a lot to me. Man, I love that. And, and I think. Again, and we saw glimpses of, of, of it in this documentary. Human, like just the human connection and having the wherewithal to just say a kind word. I mean, not that he was your best friend, but understanding that you were going through a challenging time. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was sort of, uh, it was something that really, 
resonated for me. And, it, and of course, it's also the idea of Michael doesn't, he doesn't miss a thing, does he? Does not miss Andrew. a thing. I love that. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, Andrew, you have been fantastic. As we wrap this thing down, we want to know when the real sports piece is coming out. Where can we see it? Because it's going to be fantastic. Well, thanks. And and I, I got to I got to tell you, uh, just as, as you know, uh, working in these in these challenging times presents a lot of learning opportunities. That's the positive. But also but, you know, it's difficult. And kudos to the real sports staff. Uh, because they have not let the bar drop at all. Mm. Uh, the first show that they had last month was absolutely fantastic. Tremendous journalism. I think there's some really strong stories uh, that debut on Tuesday, May 26th, uh, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern time on HBO. So thank you for asking that. And uh, Monica, I, I just want to make just one, I, I want to have one final comment here. And that is, you know, we met, I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago. And, um, uh, you know, you're, you, you yourself are a towering presence. You know, you're this, this beautiful statuesque woman. And I, I, your intellect always stood out for me at, at that time. And we have had the opportunity to keep in touch over the years, maybe not as much as I would have liked, or you would have liked, but you know, you pick right up and, and I'm really proud of you. I think that you're, you're really turning into a, a terrific interviewer and you make it really easy. And, um, anything that I can do to support you because um, I'm really proud of you and where you're going to go in your career. Andrea, I mean, I don't think, and Bruce may know this, but when people that I admire, respect, have connected with, tell me that they're proud of me, like it really is <laughs> a big deal for me. So thank you, Andrea. I appreciate you being so willing to become a mentor and join my network at that point. Um, that was such a dynamic panel. And I remember being in awe like these women have done it. Like if I could just scratch a little bit of what they've done and what they're continuing to do. So I'm so thankful for your time today and your continued support. Thank you. And hopefully we'll do it again soon. And maybe, yeah. maybe in person one of these days. That would be fantastic. Thank Mainly you so to much. you, to anybody who's listening to Bruce, to his mom, be, be healthy, be safe, be smart and, uh, and, and really take good care. Yes, indeed. That was dope. <laughs> We could have easily done two hours with Andrea Kramer. No, for real, like two full hours. She's got incredible stories, as you've already heard. Hopefully, she'll be kind enough to join us again down the road. We cannot thank her enough. Thanks also to my producer, loyal sidekick slash co-host, hey, Bruce, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Ben Wolfen, who does a fantastic job. He makes all of us sound amazing. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. This week, the Mike Wise Show featured a detailed breakdown of The Last Dance with Sam Smith, who has covered the Bulls for four decades. You probably remember Sam Smith's name came up a bunch in the documentary. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin have some final thoughts on The Last Dance. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams have a new show each Tuesday. BJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops every Friday. And I'm back next Thursday with a brand new edition of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Please remember to pray for all of the nurses, doctors, and other frontline workers helping to keep our society going through these tough times. We owe all of them a great debt. Continue to follow social distancing guidelines, wash your hands, and wear a mask to protect yourself and others. If you like buckets, boards, and blocks, please subscribe, rate us, review us, give us a five-star rating. We would appreciate that. Until we meet again, my people, 
Enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 